And welcome back to Fully Equipped. Jonathan Wall, Chris McCormick, and Gene Parenti. The whole crew is here. I'm back after a much-needed break, but it is good to see your smiling faces. Has anything gone on in the golf world since I've been gone? Not a lot? I mean, there there may have been a thing or two. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you go and take a week off and the whole golf world blows up, so uh, you might want to plan your vacations a little bit better. <laughs> Well, the, the good news is is that the, that you guys didn't burn down the podcast while I was gone. I, I did listen to it. Coach did a nice job quarterbacking the podcast. Gene and Chris, you, you, you did an admirable job keeping the lights on for a week. So I, I do appreciate it. My family appreciates it. It was it was nice to, to get a little bit of downtime. And if, if you are going to plan your vacations, it's, it's at least good that you didn't plan it around a major. I mean, if it was around a major, we – May have had an issue. I think the timing was okay. It's West Coast swing. No big yeah. deal. <clears throat> kind of, sort of. So before we dive into gear topics, do we, do we want to discuss the, the big golf topic, the Saudi league? I think it's obligatory. I mean, it's what everybody's talking about. Yeah. All right. Well, let me, let me get your takes. What, what, what are we thinking here? Take it away, Gene. What are your thoughts? So, you know, for me, and I've thought about this. Uh, I have not seen a fall from grace like what happened to Phil Mickelson in less than a year. And I've tried to put it in context in that when he won the PGA, he was the elder statesman, the celebrated, almost kind of the, you know, one of the like driving forces. He was, he was there as an assistant captain at the Ryder Cup. Um, there were rumors that he was going to be in the chair at CBS, you know, analyzing. I, I mean, the world was his oyster. And to go from that to literally, you know, jeopardizing relationships, not only with the PGA, but with his sponsors, it's just astounding. I've, I've never seen a fall from grace like that. I have. It's there, another big name. There may have been a couple. Who? <clears throat> uh, another another uh, former number one. Kind of a big name. 15-time major winner. Long-running number nah, one. You know, yeah, but the, the, the difference was his uh, transgressions were non-golf related. You know, the PGA was never in point. danger of suspending uh, him for that. I mean, they were, you know, I mean, to be perfectly honest, like when he apologized for his transgressions, I almost felt dirty watching the apology because I was looking into someone's marriage, you know, in their, in their personal life. And I thought, what does this have to do with golf? You know, I mean, you know, Lord knows if we, you know, peeled behind the curtain of every professional athlete, I think we'd be or you know, any person on the planet, we all have skeletons. Exactly. But what Phil did was publicly bite the hand that has fed him and attack it. And, and that's why I say it was so shocking. Uh, the, the word that just comes to mind for me is hubris that, you know, he, he and I'm sure, and I know, and, and reform needs to happen with the PGA, but it's, it's like he, I'm sure, and I'm guessing, this is pure conjecture, but 
I'm sure he had heard all those grumblings and all those things he said. I'm sure a lot of PGA Tour players feel, but he felt like by him saying it, this is the only thing I can think, everybody was, there's going to be a groundswell of support from the tour. And it was such a backlash. And then everyone that might have felt that way went, whoa, I'm not too comfortable. He stuck himself way out there. And everybody backed up. And the further they backed up, the further he got out there. Yeah. I mean, I. I look at what what's gone on. I mean, I think before Phil opened his mouth and and spoke to Alan Shipnuck, former uh, former golf mag senior writer Alan Shipnuck, who now he's working at the uh, a group that they cr- created called the Fire Pit Collective. You know, I I thought the Saudi league actually had legs. I mean, they were talking about that they needed twenty guys. There were rumors that they had twenty guys. And you weren't hearing a whole lot of of tour of tour pros backing the PGA Tour. You know, there were there was a lot of, you know, I think Adam Scott even came out and said that the schedule for the Saudi League was was appealing, and you know the money obviously was. I mean, there were rumors out there, and Bryson shot this one down, but there were rumors that the Saudis had had offered him 130 million to come play in this league. And sure enough, the second that Phil opens his mouth and those quotes get out there. You've got all the names that were rumored to be going. You know, Bryson was one of them. Bryson comes out and says, I'm staying on the PGA Tour, wouldn't go anywhere else. Dustin Johnson says the exact same thing. You know, Rory McIlroy absolutely eviscerates Phil in an interview. I mean, it's it's since then, I mean, Justin Thomas, the, the list goes on and on of guys that have, have backed the PGA Tour. I, I heard that there was a meeting this week at PGA National, and Jay Monahan, the commissioner for the PGA Tour, was in a room, and he basically told the guys in the room, "If you are not with us, you are against us, and get out." And it was a, I, I guess the the stories that have come out since then, it was pretty pointed. He he was he was not mincing words, and I I think the tour knows it's it's in a position position of power now. And I think they probably have Phil Mickelson to thank for making that possible because, you know, somebody jokingly said on social media, you know, maybe Phil was, is, is like a, you know, a secret operative and he was just trying to find ways to, to, you know, to crush the, the Saudi league. Maybe he was working for the tour. I mean, you know, stuff that like, it's jokingly, I mean, put on your tinfoil hat if you want, but <laughs> so I love the, yeah, I, I do. Spin. I think Phil. Phil, yeah, so do I. I mean, I, I love it. And it, I think probably some of these are, are tongue placed firmly in cheek. But I do think Phil killed the league. You know, I think I think Norman and Phil had a good thing going. I think they had a lot of momentum. And I, I think it's dead in the water now. The tour keeps adding money to the to their big tournaments. The players got a, a purse increase. You're seeing it for the FedEx Cup. It, you know, most of the tournaments across the board are getting larger purses. And it just, at the end of the day... You know the tour is the best and the biggest game in town, and and even if even if the Saudi league wanted to try and get in there and, and shake things up, they were going to need everybody on board to jump at once. And one misfire, and you kill the whole thing. And I think that's what we ended up seeing. I think that's exactly what we ended up seeing. And I agree with Gene that there potentially is an opportunity and an overdue need to reform a little bit. And to get the players a little bit more organized and have the structure redone to kind of modernize it per se. But yeah, to your point, Jay Wall, it's uh, 
it's it's definitely been eye opening how quickly things had turned, and with seeing the the tour take this position of power, it's uh, it's going to be interesting to see how the rest of this uh, this season plays out. Especially for Phil, I mean, when do, when do we see him next? I mean, he he gave a non apology apology you know, on social media, and you know, I, I thought it was I thought it was pretty surprising where he was saying that my actions throughout this process have always been with the best interest of golf, my peers, sponsors, and fans. Um, not necessarily sure that that any, everything he's been doing. I mean, he he openly said to Alan Shipnuck that what he was doing was trying to change the PGA Tour by by backing the Saudi League. I, I don't know if that's really to the to the best interest of his peers, sponsors, and fans. That's just me. Well, yeah, here's here's an interest. Agree with his comment there. Yeah. Well, you know, here's an interesting gear-related aspect to this. You know, so let's say he gets suspended, and, you know, there's no guarantee. No, no one has any true word it's just all rumors but let's say he gets suspended um you know for i don't know six months a year two years who knows you know whatever the time is uh you know it's 53 years old does callaway use that as an opportunity to um you know kind of part ways with him and start looking at xander and rom as the face of the company i mean you know this this could have you know, kind of major economic consequences for him as well. And there could yeah. absolutely I, be a ripple effect for sure. And it, for sure, it for sure could. We've seen it happen with other guys, not not guys not named Phil that have uh, opened their mouth and said things that have, you know, Phil Phil was speaking his mind to, to Alan Shipnuck and, and I don't know how much of that was, was, was off the record that maybe he just wasn't, you know, explicitly said is off the record you know phil kind of mentioned that maybe some of the stuff was wasn't uh, above board but yeah i could i could see there being a ripple effect i don't know how much it's going to affect him from a sponsorship standpoint but but certainly right now i mean his sponsors have to be you know squirming a little bit let's put it that way I, I'll, I'll i'll throw one thing in you know i was up at uh i was up at pebble for the AT&T and Tuesday night, I went out to dinner and, you know, there's like eight restaurants in Carmel. You can go out to dinner. And this was a big one uh, called the mission. And there's about, I don't know, 80, hundred people there. And I swear three quarters of them were tour pros with their wives, you know, mother-in-laws, kids and stuff. And I was looking around the room and I'm going, half of these guys aren't going to be here on Saturday. And, and first off, I didn't recognize any of them because, you know, all the, a lot of the major guys skipped the tournament because of the pro-am aspect, but it got me thinking half that aren't going to be there. They spent probably $40,000 to travel to Pebble, you know, and, and do this. And if you get your PGA card, shouldn't you be guaranteed you know, an income as opposed to making cuts. And I don't know, it just, it, it, I, I think some of the criticisms towards the PGA tour are valid from a reform standpoint that, you know, maybe a collective bargaining agreement needs to be in place. Something that, you know, empowers these players because they are what's driving the product. And so anyways, it was just, it, it was an interesting observation. And I realized, man, this is a, you know, this is an expensive trip if you're, you know, on a plane Friday afternoon. 
Yeah. And I think Absolutely. they've talked about that. Maybe there's a way to, to, you know, build in some sort of a, you know, you get X, you know, 50,000 for the year to, to help cover expenses and not just expenses, expenses for the pros, but also caddies and all the other, all the other expenses that come with, with a week out on tour. I mean, I, I'll continue to say that I think golf is the most difficult sport to, to have a, a long, long-term career because unlike, you know, basketball and football, where if you're good coming out of college, you're, you're at least going to get a rookie deal and there's some guaranteed money involved. And, you know, nowadays it seems like in, in pro basketball, if you're serviceable, you're getting big money and, you know, in golf, Hey, you, you win a PJ tour event that gives you two years to, to sort of continue to figure it out and keep your card. And if you don't, you're going back down to the corn ferry. So it, it is very difficult to, to make it in pro golf. So I, I totally agree. I think there's got to be a way to maybe bake that in. All right. So let's go from the Saudi league. I wanted to bring this up. So I listened to the podcast last week and I heard you guys talking about Scotty Scheffler going through the bag and I'm going to give you a demerit, both of you Uh-oh. for forgetting to Uh-oh. mention Uh-oh. that he's a free, he is a free agent. There was no mention of this whatsoever in the podcast. The guy is a free agent, which I think is probably one of the the coolest parts about Scotty Scheffler's setup is he is, you know, he's brand agnostic and he's got a lot of fun gear in the bag. You mentioned my favorite club, which is that Nike VR Pro Limited three wood that he has. Chris is smiling because he knows, he knows that that's my favorite club. When we went through our favorite setups on tour, when we did a recent mailbag, Scotty Scheffler was my pick. And I hate it because he is a Texas Longhorn. And uh, that's that's my rival school. Even though we don't play him anymore, I still consider Texas to be my rival school. But it's it's that VR Pro Limited. I, I do love that club. The interesting thing about that club that you guys didn't mention. So last year, Scotty actually cracked the face on that club after 10 years in the bag. Which, I mean, you think about it for a tour pro, the amount of time that they spent hitting that golf club, you'd had it in the bag since high school. Yeah, 10 years is impressive. Yeah, impressive. That's what I was going to say. I mean, mean, that seems exceptionally long for a club to be able to hang around. For a tour pro at those speeds, as often as they hit it, yeah, that's, like I said, impressive. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Nike doesn't make those anymore, so he was he was kind of doing what some of the other tour pros have had to do, and he was searching around on on eBay trying to see if guys would hook him up on social media, kind of the a la Daniel Berger route, where Berger was openly asking people, "Hey, look, you know, I'm buying sets of the of the TaylorMade, the MC, the 2011 MC Irons, because I can't get them anymore." And he's, I think he still is. I think he, he closed the deal recently with a guy for, for another set of irons. So yeah, I, I just, I love it. But, but Scheffler's bag, one of my favorites, but again, it's because he's a free agent and he can kind of do that stuff. He, he, he has the freedom to play what he wants. Well, that, that leads to a question that I'll pose to both of you. Um, what percentage would you estimate on the tour are free agents? Cause someone was telling me, that they saw that trend increasing that these guys wanted more autonomy in their in their setup as opposed to being beholden to and 
Correct me if I'm wrong, Chris. I believe we brought that up, unless that was just in my tiny little brain and we didn't say that. I think I think J. Wall Matt has skipped over that part. I think no, we did. you didn't. I, you didn't. You didn't mention the fact that he's a free agent, Gene. Come on. No, we didn't, didn't mention this fact that he was a free agent, but we talked about how bad I thought we did. If we didn't, like I said, it's a conversation I had with myself, which happens quite often. <laughs> but uh, it, but but back to you know what what percentage would you guys estimate are free agents um, as opposed to, you know, complete bag guys. Yeah, full bag. Complete, like complete full bag. Yeah, say, yeah. yeah, there's there's not a ton of those out there. I mean, they, uh, hmm. the OEMs take care of their marquee players. And, I mean, there's a little wiggle room for even some of those guys. So full 14 club deal. I wouldn't say the percentage is very high. What would you think, Jaywell? I would say a full 14 clubs is is probably nobody on tour because as you mentioned Chris the there is there's always been some sort of wiggle room in the setup I I mentioned this before with Ping Ping even their staffers they give those guys three clubs in the bag that they can they can test throughout the year so that's why you'll see you know like Victor Hovland for instance has has a Vokey has a Vokey wedge in his bag and you know he also has a tailor-made uh, Sim three wood that we had mentioned. That's his uh, his caddy Shea Knights. It's actually his three wood. So he has a couple of of non-pin clubs in the bag, but he has the biggies. You know he's got the putter, which you know next to Tony Finau before Finau added the the PLD answer two putter to the bag. Or I guess it's the two D if I'm going to be giving the the actual name. You know. Tony was the only guy on the ping staff that actually had the ability to be a staffer but not have to play a ping putter. And and that was because ping just really wanted to get Tony on staff and they figured, look, let's just kind of break the conventional mold of how we view tour deals and let's just get him on staff and get him into the putter. And it's paid off because he he got into the putter and he, he wins again. So, yeah, it, you don't see a lot of – you know, I don't think a lot of guys would play 14 through the bag – if you if you told them they had to, I think some guys like being able to say, "All right, you know, you're giving me the ability to play 11, 12, or whatever, and and have a couple of clubs to fiddle around with just in case something isn't working from time to time." But yeah, you you don't see a lot of the staff deals like you used to because manufacturers just don't see that as being as much as being as important as it used to be. You know, I remember back to the days when, you know, it felt like an arms race, tailor-made in Callaway, trying to sign as many guys as possible. Yep. And, you know, I think a lot of the manufacturers have found that, you know, next to the big names, having a large tour staff is one, expensive, and two, just really not beneficial. You know, it's, it's people are, people are watching the golf, but I don't think they care who has the biggest staff. I think, you know, they have their favorite players and they're looking at the guys to see what's in their bags. And you know, maybe it leads them to try a different club or, or maybe buy something from that brand. But yeah, there's just not a lot of value in in having the big staffs and forcing the guys to play all the clubs through the bag anymore. Well, how about how about just let's let's step it down a step and say logos, you know, guys that are wearing the hat or have the bag or something like that, you know, and, and I don't know what like what's what's required for a logo is i mean it's more than a driver right to you know if you're going to be wearing uh the oem's hat or you know uh on the shirt or something like that i mean those are those are all the most prominent spaces on on a tour pro the ones that are as you mentioned the most the most expensive if you're going to try and get sponsorship the the front of hat 
the golf bag, you know, the, the front of shirt is, is also really, really pricey. So, um, it, 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 I think it depends on, on obviously the pro. I mean, if you look at the guys like a Brooks Kepka or a Tony Finau, you know, Nike pays really well, but they pay by your, your world ranking. So when Brooks was, you know, number one in the world for a while, he didn't need, I mean, he's, I talked, when I talked to him and you can go back and listen to the interview that I had with him, he said, you know, money wasn't a reason for signing with Cleveland tricks on. And I believe, you know, he won in Phoenix with their irons. I think that obviously helps, but when you're number one, you don't have to, to go looking for other deals. And so, you know, Nike, because Nike pays well, you're never really going to be able to get those Nike guys to have, you know, your equipment company's hat on. You're going to kind of have to get a little more creative with those deals. And maybe you get, you know, maybe you get them to carry your staff bag, but, you know, you kind of realize if you're going to go after a Nike guy, a Nike apparel guy, that you're not going to be able to get those prominent spots on on front of hat and in front of shirt. It's just it's just not there. Other guys are, are a little bit more inclined to do it because they realize the money's big and they're going to be able to get some more guaranteed cash by by wearing a you know TaylorMade hat or a Titleist hat or a Callaway. So yeah, it just it depends on the player and kind of where they're at. I think that's that kind of determines what you're going to get as far as signage on a tour pro when you're trying to do a deal. Gotcha. Um, all right. So I, now that I got that out of the way that we, we didn't get everything correct on Scotty Scheffler. Um, <laughs> I, I, I am, I am, I'm serious. I'm, I'm, I'm issuing demerits. I wanted, I want to discuss a new series that we released last week. And, and this is one as we'd sort of tease leading up to, to club test club test was also released last week. If you didn't see it, go check it out on golf.com. All the new clubs are there. All the insights, robot insights on the drivers, player insights, our insights on all the clubs. But we released a new series called RoboTest as well. And it's with Gene and myself and Chris. And we took basically 12 topics. And a lot of a lot of them I kind of called like debunking gear myths. And we ran these tests on the robot to kind of determine what, you know, what would happen if you, you know, adjusted for this first one, which was we're trying to do a correlation between T height and carry distance. What happens if you move the T vertically along the face in, you know, 0. 0.3, 0. 0.6 from center? Like what's going to happen with the carry distance? And it was a fun test, Gene. I think it's a great way to, to kick things off. Again, if you haven't seen it, it's our new Robo Test series. Check it out on golf.com. Gene, I want you to just kind of discuss what we were doing with this test and, and some of the insights that we found. Well, you know, it's interesting. And I'll tell you where, where the test came from. Um, and there's, there's kind of a dividing line age-wise. And unfortunately, I'm getting up to the point where I'm right on the dividing line. But it's, did you grow up with persimmon or did you grow up with kind of modern drivers? And I grew up with persimmon. And I think a lot of you know, I'm 55 and 55 and above. Most most older golfers grew up with persimmon. Persimmon is very shallow. The drivers. I mean, it's we're talking the depth of a three wood. And what happens is, in order to hit a three wood, what do you have to do? You got to stick the tee deep in the ground, right? Or you're just gonna you're gonna top the ball. So I started noticing over the years, especially with older golfers, that they tee off. 
And I would watch them and the tee would be a quarter, half inch above the ground. And the ball would go out really low and rise. And I knew from robot testing that that was a function of low launch and high spin, which was not an effective series of launch conditions in order to maximize distance. So I started thinking about it and I, and I thought, you're, you're taught to tee the ball up when you learn the game. And then you never really think about it again. You just tee the ball up to the point that you're used to teeing the ball up. And so I started experimenting one day with tee height. And the face of a driver has what's called bulge on it. And, and, and what bulge means is the face is not um, linear. It, 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 it has a curve. And with the curvature, the higher you go, the higher the launch angle is and the lower the spin so we started experimenting, and what we did with this test is um, we took a negative two attack angle. And so once again, we're swinging on an arc, and that's kind of hitting slightly down. That's uh, probably the attack angle of you know the majority of kind of mid-handicap players. They hit slightly down on the ball, and we started 0.6 of an inch towards the bottom. Then we went 0.3 geometric center, 0.3 high, and 0.6 high. So the the top and the bottom, the ball was completely compressing, but it was literally on the on the edge on either. And then 0.3. And what we found is if you hit the ball on the lower portion of the club face with the with the T low versus uh 0.3 high, that seemed to be the maximum point you can get up to 25 yards increase in distance. And it's, it's, it's not magic. It's simply physics. And the physics are the higher you launch the ball and the lower you spin the ball, generally the, the further the ball travels. Now, if you are at plus two or plus four attacking, so you're a better player and swinging inside out and swinging up on it, you're not going to see the same distance gains as you are at negative two. So this is more for the average recreational golfer. Um, and we used a 10.5 head. So we used kind of an average player's head. We didn't do any, there weren't any tricks to this. It wasn't like we had a seven degree head or a three wood or something like that. We took a, a typical product in a typical setup at a typical speed. And all we did was just adjust the ball vertically and then we recorded the data. Yeah, it, it's, it's so simple. Yeah, I would say it, it is really that easy. It was a fun first test to do. I mean, sure, the the increase in distance is, is something that's going to make you click on the story. But as Gene mentioned, we, we ran the test because, you know, the average golfer, this you know, they're they're going to be they're a little bit more negative. They're not positive with, with you know with their delivery, you know, ten and a half's pretty standard head, and it's you know, look if you if you can deliver the the golf ball at impact higher on the face, if you're a guy that's a little bit more on on the negative side, I mean that that's that's a game changer. You don't have to go buy a different driver. You don't have to do anything. It's I I, I hate calling it a gear hack, but it does sort of feel like one. Well, you know, Chris, maybe you can speak to this because you you have such a wealth of knowledge as far as all the players that come through TrueSpec. You know, give us kind of, you know, what the average 15 to 18 handicapper looks like, you know, when they come through your facility from, you know, from a delivery standpoint. 
Well, I mean, as you were kind of talking about that negative angle of attack and path usually traveling a little more out to in is kind of the, the typical MO of what we see. But I mean, most of the time when I'm talking about just strike location to a player, I will pull up a picture of the face on the, the Foresight Quad and it has a great graphic where it shows the club face and then there's a, a dotted line across the face to almost divide it into quadrants. And I'll talk to a player about if we had to pick a quadrant to essentially focus on trying to hit, that quadrant that trends towards the high toe is going to be the fastest, most, most efficient place to hit it. And taking advantage of a little bit of gear effect for somebody that has a tendency to potentially miss right a little bit and missing towards the toe could potentially help you know, straighten that out a little bit depending upon what their face-to-path relationship is. So, I mean, having that conversation of T-height, most players tee it too low, which encourages more of a negative angle of attack. Teeing it high, you will see sometimes a player actually start to change dynamically what they do to deliver that driver a little more shallow or potentially even produce a, a little mm. more positive angle of attack. So just making a little static change with T-height can sometimes change dynamically what the player does with the delivery of the driver. Interesting. Yeah. Well, we're going to be releasing these tests every other week. We have a whole bunch of them banked all the way through the the middle of this year. So keep checking out golf.com. We'll discuss them each week that we, that we release the tests. We'll kind of go back through and recap them for those of you that may have missed it. But it's a good first one to start with. Next week's, I don't want to tease it too hard, but it may be my favorite because it's it's a very it's a very common question that we get. I won't I won't say much more than that, but be on the lookout. We'll have it next week on golf.com, the new Robo Test series. It'll be a fun one. All right, other topics I wanted to to quickly discuss as far as you know, there's not a whole lot of gear news going on last week at Riviera. Joaquin Neiman was your winner if you didn't see that. He went wire to wire, wire to wire, first wire to wire winner at Riviera since 1969 when Charlie Sifford did it. We actually have, and I guess I'll just say it now, we've got Kenton Notes from Ping as the interview this week. Kenton went all the way through uh, Joaquin's bag, offered some great insights on his setup and a couple other fun nuggets. Um, gear changes last week that caught my eye. Rory McElroy. Now, this is an interesting one, Chris. And I wanted to, to get your take because, you know, anytime Rory does something, I, casual golfers want to know, you know, if they could benefit from the setup. So Rory has two three irons that he'll employ in his bag setup. He has a TaylorMade P77, P770 that he uses at the top of his iron set. You know, a little bit more forgiveness, hollow body construction, has a steel shaft, but he actually put in a P790 three iron last week with a graphite shaft. He went to a Fujikura Ventus black. That's the HB version. So the one that's going to be going in, you know, your hybrids or utility irons. It was a 10 X, which is, uh, is pretty stiff. And Rory was trying to eliminate, he said just a little bit of a, a little bit of left in it. He said he just couldn't find a steel shaft to his liking. And so he went and tried out the, the Fujikura Ventus black, but how, you know, we see a lot of tour pros nowadays. I feel like more than ever that are going away from hybrids and into utility irons. And a lot of them are, are using graphite shafts. W- when you're working with a player, what, when do you kind of suggest that they consider trying graphite versus steel? 
I mean, a lot of it comes down to, I mean, there's a little bit of a checklist almost. So looking objectively what it is they're trying to accomplish is, I mean, obviously you have an opportunity to kind of fine tune the bend profile of a composite shaft over a steel shaft when it comes to butt stiffness, mid stiffness, tip stiffness, and you can kind of tweak a composite shaft a little bit more. Now, feel is a huge component of it. Weight is a huge component of it. And then, like I said, the player objective. So, I mean, when it comes to the transition of does a player need to be in a steel shaft or does a player need to be in a composite shaft, if it's a weighting component, a lot of times we will trend towards steel. If it's a particular launch window that they're trying to hit or if they're looking for distance versus control, spin, carry, you know, whatever the case may be, that's where we kind of start to make the determination. What is the player trying to achieve? And like in Rory's case, if he had a particular miss that just kept showing up testing steel, <clears throat> there are opportunities to kind of fine tune a composite shaft during the build. So you can get away with a composite and the composites now, the modern composites are so much tighter as far as, as far as the tolerances are compared to composites from even 10 years ago. So you can really mm -hmm. dial in what it is that a player is trying to look for when it comes to the weighting aspect, the uh, you know, just hitting that specification that they're trying to get to with making the spot in the bag for that club with a composite. Yeah. Gene, Gene do you do any, any testing steel versus... Steel versus graphite, just to kind of see the the benefits of those products on on the road. We 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 do, and you know, I second what what Chris says. You know, um, from the, the the interesting thing about steel versus graphite is, uh, you know, and I, <laughs> this is no knock against the steel manufacturers, but it's it's tough to innovate in the steel front because you've got 100%. a two. And, and, you know, and so, um, I know that, you know, they try and, and they work on things and there's some interesting like hybrids out there, but for the most part, steel is steel. Um, <coughs> but graphite is, uh, much more, you know, so that the basics are steels heavier than graphite. So if you want to hit it, swing it faster and hit it longer, play graphite. The, the second aspect of grasp graphite is, by uh, constructing a shaft out of composites, it allows you many, many different options as to where to put the flex point, how to control the torque, how to control the, uh, the multi-axis rotation, meaning that the shaft could, you know, rotate as the head comes down, as it starts to uh, close and then lead lag. And so, they have a lot more flexibility in how to design and to be honest, how to innovate. Uh, the third thing that I'd add to that, which we don't necessarily see in robotic testing, but I do believe in is composites absorb much more energy than steel. And so if you're an older golfer composites by absorbing that energy have a little, um, less wear and tear on the body, especially on miss hits than you would see in steel. Yeah. I, you know, I think the, the one thing that's really surprised me is the number of tour pros now that we're seeing go to, to Chris calls a composite. I call it graphite shafts in, in their irons in wedges. I mean, Bryson's one of them, but we've also seen Abraham answer, go to go to you know he's he's using a mitsubishi product in his in his irons 
you know, Matt Kuchar and Brand Snedeker were using Aerotech. I feel like before it was as popular as it is now. So it, it's it's no longer it's no longer a secret anymore. I feel I feel like as when you start to see the tour pros using it, that's like the big litmus test in my opinion, because those guys are so particular with their products. Where if, if they're if they're liking it and they're seeing the benefits, it's like, you know. I think that's I think that's when the the casual golfer needs to start considering it as well, especially as you start getting up in age. Just because graphite has so many benefits beyond just you know it's it good good solid dispersion and consistency, but but not getting the unwanted vibrations and being able to practice longer and and just have more fun and and not feel the wear and tear after a round. Well, you know it's interesting what Chris was saying about ten years ago because. You know, from 10 to 20 years ago and, and longer than that, uh, you know, but the 10 to 20 year window, no tour pro would play graphite in their irons. And I think it was due to, you know, what Chris was saying about the consistency of that. And there was also. Except for Phil. A crit- yeah, except for Phil. <laughs> except for Phil. There's uh, Phil again. Gotta, you got, He's back. You got to bring it back. But uh, the, the other thing was uh, that, that I heard a lot was feel. And feel's always one that I. I don't want to say roll my eyes, but it's such an intangible that, you know, and it's, it's so player specific that it's really tough to, you know, quantify from an R and D standpoint, but it, it appears that, you know, to both of your points that, that graphite has reached a point that it, it has the feel of steel from these elite players. And, you know, to be honest, you know, from a wear and tear standpoint, even if you're 28, 30, if you're beating hundreds and hundreds of golf balls a day and there's a one or 2% difference, you know, in, in energy absorption, maybe it's 5%. I, I, I've never quantified it, but whatever it is, that's going to extend your career that much longer. And, and so if, if it feels the same, if it gives you the same, you know, kind of launch window attributes and it can extend your career, it's kind of a no brainer. Absolutely. I, I totally agree. Other other things that I wanted to point out here, Colin Morikawa re-upped with TaylorMade. It's a multi-year deal. He's going to stay on as a key centerpiece for TaylorMade's tour staff. And I, I think the bigger story here is something that I've been noticing here recently. You know, next to John Rahm signing with Callaway, I just don't really see big money equipment deals being a thing going forward. I think I think we're going to either see tour pros go the free agent route or stick with their current manufacturer. I just, you know, I don't think the big money's out there unless you are like a ROM name and unless you really need that guaranteed money, as as we've discussed plenty of times on the podcast, the money that's now out there on the PGA Tour, if you're successful on tour, you can make a lot of money on the golf course, a lot more than you could probably ever make getting guaranteed money and unless I mean the the Rory deals from when he signed the the equipment and apparel deal with Nike you know almost a decade ago I mean those that that kind of money isn't out there anymore so I I think I think seeing a guy like a Colin Morikawa who's having success there's really no reason to shake things up and, and try and chase money you you know you signed with TaylorMade right out of school it's worked for you stick with them um Ricky Fowler I saw was using a new 35-inch TaylorMade Spider GT Black. That's the new Spider version, the 2022 one. It's the first time he's ever used a TaylorMade putter. 
Um, didn't have a super great week with it. I think he was in the 60s in strokes gained putting for the week. He made the cut. But um, again, Ricky's been Ricky's been searching. He's used a Cobra putter. He's used obviously Scotty Cameron and now TaylorMade. He's he's trying to find something, and and clearly he hasn't found it yet. Um, so those were kind of the the biggie stories from last week. I mean, other than that, I don't really know of any of any other uh, gear topics. I did want to point out that we have a giveaway going on. I Uh-oh. am going to be giving away. Yeah, here we go. The new Bridgestone Tour B XS. They have a Tiger Woods edition. It's something they've kind of come out for the last few years. And so I asked some. Uh, I asked a question, just an easy one. Give me your favorite memory of of Tiger. And I was gonna pick one that I thought was kind of cool and give the give the dozen balls away. And I said I'd announce it on the podcast. And I'm gonna be true to my word because I think there've been plenty of times where I've said. I'm going to give away something on the podcast and we're going to announce a winner and we never did. So Joey Downs, he's at JDD3 on Twitter. You are the winner of the Tiger Woods Tour B XS golf balls. His memory, I thought this was a cool one, guys. He said, April 1995, collegiate tourney week before Augusta, hitting balls with Tiger while he waited for his ride to an airport for his first Masters. I was a teaching pro at the host club and watched him shape shots needed at Augusta. Still have the video of us. Wow. That's pretty amazing. awesome. That's yeah. Very cool. Pretty, pretty, pretty amazing. So congrats to Joey. I'll, uh, I'll get your address and get those golf balls out to you. I think it's a good time to now transition into this week's interview. As I mentioned, we had Kent notes. He is one of the ping tour reps and Kenton and I went through Joaquin Neiman's bag for whatever reason. Like as I mentioned at the outset of the interview, there were a lot of questions about Joaquin's gear, and I felt like it was a good time to get KO on the podcast. He's always been good to us, gives great insights. Joaquin is actually a guy who's been playing ping clubs since he was a kid. He had a junior set, and, and KO talks a little bit about Joaquin's connection to ping. Great interview. Enjoy it. Before we get to this week's interview, I wanted to let you know that this episode of Fully Equipped is brought to you by Golf Magazine Top 100 Instructor George Gankus' training aid, the G-Box. The G-Box is the absolute best training aid to help you make a full and complete body turn. To accomplish the complete turn, both beginners and professionals can utilize the G-Box in such a way as to not only promote the correct depth of backswing, but also proper width of the arms throughout their swing. The G-Box is not only easy to use, but provides the same immediate feedback from specific drills that George Gankus provides to all his players during their lessons. Simply said, the G-Box is the most versatile training aid today for perfecting your backswing and downswing drills. To pick up your G-Box, simply head over to golf.com's pro shop and use promo code FULLYEQUIPPED for 10% off. That's promo code FULLYEQUIPPED, one word, at the golf.com pro shop. And with that, let's get to KO. All right, well, Joaquin Neiman is your winner at the Genesis. He wins in decisive fashion, goes wire to wire, first time since Charlie Sifford in 1969. So you know who we need to get on the podcast. Kent Notes, Ping Tour Rep, KO, what's going on? No, much, John. Thanks for having me. And yeah, it's always, like I said, it's always good when I'm talking to you because that means uh, one of our uh, guys has done uh, something pretty special. And in this case, I think uh, really special with the, you know that wire to wire to win it rip for uh, Joaquin. Yeah. So it's interesting when we do the winner's bag every week, you know, every once in a while I'll get some questions about guys' bags, but for whatever reason, 
I got a lot of questions about Joaquin's setup. Um, but before we get into his gear, I want to ask you, all right, so we're, we're out of the West Coast swing. We're on to the East Coast. PGA National this weekend. I know you're on site. Yep. At what point are guys starting to do Masters prep? Because I'm already seeing commercials for the Masters yeah. on ESPN. What, what point are you starting to do that prep? I think we're going to probably well, – this is actually uh, right about now. Like We'll start to – you know, you start to when you see that logo, it means something different. Uh, we were all on our trailer yesterday, and the uh, 19 Masters replay came on, and obviously that one was super special with Tiger. And yep. We kind of all stopped. So, like, when you start to see that logo on a hat now, it's like, oh, this is gonna happen again. You got to start to get that vibe. So we'll start prepping now. Uh, make sure that we have all all the parts we need for the guys who are gonna be in that tournament, and then. You know, uh, the veterans are already kind of asking questions uh, that are obviously, you know, they're thinking that way. Like, Louie's looking, you know, asked a question in Phoenix about, a, you know, playing our new wedge, but was making sure he could get enough height out of bunkers down the road. And I think that's always with his eyes on Augusta and not so much what the courses that he's currently playing. Yeah. All right. So, Joaquin's setup. I, I, I got to know. I mean, Joaquin hasn't been uh, a – staffer for very long but I've heard stories that he's been playing pink gear for for basically his entire career can you can you confirm or deny that confirm yeah he got a set of uh ping moxie clubs at a young age which is just our junior set and uh, he played those for a long time and then he transferred into uh into some other gear I think that he maybe purchased or gotten in Chile and then I mean he's only 23 years old and I've heard of Joaquin Neiman in the tour department since he was maybe 15. So it's eight. I mean, it's pretty crazy uh, that, you know, he's been on our radar for that long. And he's, I mean, he's really hasn't been around for that long at, at 23. Yeah, exactly. So, so recall for me the first time that you worked with Joaquin, what was that like? So the very first time I remember working with Joaquin, he was playing um, final stage of Q school. So he was going to be what? Man, that's what 18 ish, 17. It's got to be 18. I think. 18 or 19, maybe. And he came up to ping. And he didn't play very good the first day. And we're like, oh, you know, nerves, young pro, final stage, whatever. And he goes, I think there's something. He goes, I think there might be something up with my putter. And Christian um, at the time was, you know, leading the fitting. And he puts it on the board. And it was, it gotten bent or something in transit. The thing had seven degrees of loft on it. So we're like, we're like, bud, just, just let us know we're down the road. But he was just a young kid. He's like, oh, he's like, I didn't know. And, uh, so we bent it back, and I think he shot like maybe 76 or 77 in the first round. Then the next three rounds were in the 60s once he had uh, some functional putter loft. Oh, my gosh. So it, it, that brings up a question that I've – like I go back to talking to Max Home at one point, and he talked about early on in his career when he was kind of similar to like Joaquin, really young, just out kind of trying to figure out his way. And he mentioned really not ever going into the tour truck. Do, do the younger guys, do they tend to kind of – do you have to like – um, I don't know, maybe just like kind of school them a little bit on the importance of going in the truck and getting their specs set up or, or guys different do some, you know, with the younger guys, are they a little more in tune with that? You know, it's, it's, it's very personality. I, I mean, age there, I would say in general, this younger, this next group of kids is, I don't know if it's because they're just different. They're definitely less like they don't freak out as much if things change over time, but um, from coming into the truck, we have young guys that come in the truck. Joaquin's definitely one that, I mean, he, he's pretty good unless he's good. But, like, we'll always make sure we do have to, like, push him to, like, hey, let's check your loss and lies. Um, you just want to stay on top of that. But that's 
I think it's a little bit of age, but a lot of personality in that. Yeah. So Joaquin is is from Chile. You've got Mito Pereira, also another Chilean. Is 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 golf big down there? I mean, I, I think of Chile as, as soccer, but but have you started to notice just from like Ping's perspective? Are are you getting more orders for Ping gear now that you've got a couple of I mean, I guess the most noticeable and recognizable golfers in the country on your staff? I, I would I would hope to think so. I don't I'm not privy to be an actual number on that, but if you watch like um Joaquin and Mito's uh social through their time at home in Chile, like this offseason, they were playing in what looked like mini tour events and there were you know there were pretty good crowds you know following these guys playing golf and um their coach and their academy seems to be growing just based on what i can see from where i am and uh, it can't hurt to have you know two players uh you know now a top 20 player in the world and mito you know one of the best rookies on tour uh coming from your country um to help grow the game so we're super excited about that yeah all right, so so getting into Joaquin's gear, I, I was just kind of going through it. One of the things that I will say for, for those listening, Ping does as good a job as anybody out there on on what's in the bags. I mean, it, golf golf gearheads, they want all the nitty-gritty. And Ping's website, if you go to like and look at their tour staff, I mean, they update it weekly. They give yep. you all, all the details down to swing weight, tipping, grips, wraps, whatever. I, I absolutely love it, especially as somebody who, as I'm trying to kind of get a feel for, you know, what maybe Joaquin does different. I, I start with, you know, he's got kind of an eclectic mix. He's got a G410 LST driver. He's got G425, yep. you know, fairway woods, eye blade. Um, you know, he's got a 3.0 wedge. He's got, you know, Glideforge Pro wedges as well. What what it makes me wonder is, does Joaquin like to test gear? Is he the kind of guy when he gets a setup? Is he like, look, I just don't want to test right now? What What's his kind of personality like when it comes to equipment? Like if I'm putting him out on a scale of 100 is the guy that would test anything at any time in zero, Joaquin probably does sit on the lower end, like a 40 type of range there. Like yeah. he's a – I mean, his if it's working for him, it's not something that – he's definitely not going to not test for us if we bring out new product. Obviously, that's how you know we have – you know, a, you know, the PLD answer, the Glide Forge Pros and the 425 fairways. But um, he's also not going to switch unless it's better, which is I mean, that's that's fine with us, too. Like, it's just he's just uh, once it works for him, he's a uh, he's good to go. And he's not going to he's not going to ask to test probably unless something's not working. But he's he's very open to testing, which is great for us. It's it's great. Yeah. So, I mean, for instance, like with the G410 LST driver, yeah. does does he did he test G425? Is yeah. he is he kind of trying to like work his way into that? I mean, or is he pretty much like I mean, he just won. So, obviously, you know, he's probably not changing much, but but how much is he kind of testing throughout the season? Yeah, that's a great question. So, he tested, he gave us, you know, a lot of opportunities with that 425 and he played it a couple weeks in the summer, maybe at Memorial. I know for sure he played it. But I mean, just like anything, um, every driver is, they're kind of, we, we've been on a long run of where we're, you know, doing similar things and there's small changes and the differences in the 425 are, it's probably a little bit more left bias in that LS tech. And it's probably a little bit less spinning, uh, than 410. And both of those things are, you know, stuff that, you know, Joaquin doesn't really want. He wants that thing to, you know, if anything, just miss right. And he needs spin. He's a pretty big under spinner. So, um, some of the reasons why a guy like Victor Hovland loves the 425 is why Joaquin even wasn't able to transition into it. And at the end of the day, you know, 
you go shoot 19 under at Riviera and you play a ping driver, we're going to be pretty happy. Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned, uh, you know, Joaquin being an underspinner. I mean, we yes. we've talked about we talked about Hovey before. He is he's an underspinner, and I actually had a question here recently, and it's it's great that you're on. Somebody somebody wanted to know like how do you, how do you become an underspinner? What what kind of a of an angle or or what makes guys like Joaquin and Victor the kind of guys that have trouble generating you know more spin? Their their guys are typically on the lower end of the spectrum. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, one the the reason Joaquin is such an underspinner is he's so shallow. So his shaft is so shallow. And then the loft, that, and then the loft that both those guys, Victor and Joaquin, present at impact is they're they're if they have a ten degree driver, they're probably presenting nine. So they're going to have very good face control and very stable faces. And Joaquin's a super underspinner because he's super shallow, and he can in off the driver. You see, he's starting to hit more draw. So as he starts to do that, when that pass starts to kick out right, it even starts to spin a little bit less. So he has his soft little draw that probably launches at eleven. But even the one that he launches like at five, it's cutting, so it adds a little bit. But it really just comes down to how much waft you're presenting and what angle you're presenting that waft at. Gotcha. So, you know, tour pros, everybody notices, you know, Joaquin's got the LST in in the driver. He's, you know, obviously low spin product for, for a guy that generates a lot of speed. But he's in the max products in, in the yep. three – and the seven wood, which I don't know if it really surprises me because I know I know tour pros are looking to kind of get that high launch and and maximize carry and get the ball to, to land softly. But but I mean he does play the max in both heads. Did he did he try an LST as well or, or was it pretty he much did. like max right out of the gate? Nope. He tried so he tried uh 425 max and LST three woods the week we brought him out. Uh, that would have been a year ago in Vegas. And uh for him simply it was uh the big thing for Joaquin is how it sits on the ground. Like that's why if you notice he's in the dot settings, he loves, he, he really likes a square head that the toe kind of sits a little bit up and the LST shaping just wasn't for him. So right away, um, it kind of made our job. A little, the LST was out simply from a look perspective because that head is a little flatter looking in that toe to him. So he was, he was in love with the max look right away. So it wasn't really a launch and spins thing. There it was a, I don't want to look at this. So I'm going to play the 425 max. Yeah. Somebody also pointed out to me, you know, asking about the tipping that he had on his fairways, and I noticed that he's he's an inch on the three wood and two inches on on the seven wood. For those out there that maybe don't understand tipping, and why would you, you know, we've we've heard golfers talk about you know tipping a driver before, but why would a guy like like Joaquin want to tip his three wood an inch and then tip it an extra inch on the seven wood? That's a great question. So. Um, Joaquin's tipping. So if it, people, if your listeners don't understand, tipping is just you initially cut the shaft from the tip end that goes into the hosel or the head on a fixed glued part, and then you butt cut from there. So and anytime you tip, any number that I say, the more I say tipping. So when you say one inch or two inches, the bigger number is going to make it play stiffer. So the reason we end up tipping the seven woods and five woods more is simply because we cut them shorter. And in Joaquin's case, there's actually a greater gap in that he plays his seven wood really short. So we were able to tip it a little bit more than you might think for him. Um, Cause that one inch tip on a three wood is probably a half inch less than what we would see in general out here. But being an under spinner, we tip that a little less for him. But the reason we can tip him more on the seven wood is because if you look at, I have his spec sheet up right now, his three wood is 213 grams of head weight. Well, because of the length and swing weight, his seven wood is 235 grams. So all that extra head weight, if you played it at the same tipping, the extra head weight would make it play massively softer. So that's why we end up 
fudging that tipping a little bit more to try to get them the same feel um, and delivery pattern on the shorter club as the longer club. Yeah. So I've, I've heard of a lot of tour pros using seven wood. Some of them are, are using it because it's a, a easier club to extract it from the rough and, you know, it kind of fits that yardage. Others were using seven because fives were too long. What's, what's Joaquin's reasoning for using sevens? I mean, we, we've talked about seven woods before KO. I mean, yeah. they, they continue to keep growing in popularity on tour. We see more and more pros using them, but, but what's kind of his reasoning for, for putting a seven wood in there? Yeah. I'll remember when he switched, uh, cause he had a hybrid, um, coming to us, played a hybrid that first year on tour when he got his card, uh, by, uh, his exemptions. Um, and then, uh, I, we talked about it like we always have, but he was, he liked his hybrid and, but at Memorial, um, COVID year, uh, Jack's place was super firm and he's like, I, I need something to stop balls on par fives struggling from that 250 to 255 in degrees. And I was like, dude, it's a seven wood. And he gave me the look that all, you know, 20 year olds give me like, I'm not playing a seven wood. And he goes, it's going to go too high. I'm like, I promise you it's not going to go too high. So that's why we cut it an extra half inch short. We normally build them at 41, but I think out of fear, I was like, well, let's just cut this thing at 40 and a half and make sure it doesn't go too high. And, uh, yeah, he goes to, he, he does it for into par fives. Yeah. So does he with with a seven wood? I mean, we see some guys kind of shake up their setups depending on, on the course setup. Is he pretty like is he pretty stock like he's using this setup regardless of the setup or does he does he maybe throw in a you know a utility iron or something if he's yeah, playing a course with one of your firmer conditions? He's been fairly loyal to that seven wood. The only I'd have to go check what he played at the British last year. Other than that, it's seven wood every week now. It's it's just a part of his bag. Gotcha. So top of the set. I see a lot of a lot of X flex shafts, but then you go straight into the ping eye blade irons. He's in the four through nine there, and yep. I noticed that he has he's playing PX six point Yeah, which I mean, it to me, I think about like PX and the PX being Project X. He's he, I mean six O is a little bit on the softer side, especially when you've got a guy who's playing who's playing six X and eight X in his driver in in fairways. What's what's kind of the reasoning for going maybe a touch softer in the irons? Yeah, so he came to us uh, like when he, as an amateur player, he played six O's uh, through working with Scott Sullivan, um, the head of our amateur department, and then he did some he did some shaft testing that early year. He tried X one hundreds and six fives, and he didn't like the feel, and he didn't like the fact that he lost height. So he's very very um, conscious of how high he can hit it because he can end up having a slightly lower descent angle. So those six O's give him a little bit higher descent angle. And in his case, he's so shallow and his face is so stable that, I mean, for you or me, if we go to something too soft for our swing speed, we're probably going to see a big dispersion, but his face is so locked in. It it doesn't really cost him anything. It just, I think it makes his half shots a little bit easier and it really just gives him the height that he's looking for. When you're working with a guy like Joaquin, how much, or do you, have a launch monitor nearby and if so how much is he kind of analyzing the numbers talking to you about about those numbers as you're going through i, I just wonder if yeah he's like you know joaquin's more news he's kind of a combination i feel like he's a very feel player but he's also not gonna he's a feel player so it has to pass the field check but it also has to pass the number check he's very into his yardages so like when we're doing seven wood and three wood testing and irons like it's got to feel right, but it also has to go the right number. It doesn't like he's gonna he's gonna check both boxes. So he's he's yeah. kind of a blend, I would say. But it, it's so, always on. Yeah. 
So when he goes from four through nine, I notice that he he's in a glide 3.0, 46 yep. degrees. So he's using that as his pitching wedge. What what's what's kind of the the decision for him behind going with the 3.0 versus maybe throwing in a, a glide forge pro? Because I know that he's got that in the 52, 56, and 60. I just think it's all visual in that 3.0. Um, it, it's got the similar. It's got more similar shaping to his eye blade. So it kind of it's a little smaller but not as small as the Forge Pro. So it's like a nice, it's like a nice blended transition into those Clyde Forge Pros. Gotcha. Okay. So he is in the, the 6.0 PX 6.0 in the 46 degree, but then he goes into true temper dynamic gold tour issue S 400s in the yep. wedges. The one thing that stands out to me is he's standard grind in the 52, 56 and 60. And I mean, maybe it's more common than, than I think KO, but I mean, how many guys do you have that are that are just standard grind basically throughout the, the wedge set? In the middle wedges, Jonathan, we have quite a bit. Most of our guys don't don't touch those middle wedges. And in the right. sixty degree, uh, in the sixty degree, this probably isn't on the website, but he does have a grind on that standard sole. So that was my next question. Is, was yeah, kind of it is a little bit. It's a little bit more tour than than you thought it was. So okay, so, so okay, he's well, got. Yeah, but what, what kind of when you say it's a little bit more tour, like what what do you what do you mean? Like what what is he was, trying to kind of get with his with his grind there? So I think you were probably onto it with what you with your thinking of like surprise he played just a standard soul, but so he takes off a bunch of the heel, a bunch of the trail, and he squares the lead edge a little bit. So he's trying to make sure the club sits low enough when he opens it up because he plays a lot of his shots wide open. Okay, and is there a reason why he would rather just kind of? take it off a, like a standard versus using, I mean, because Ping has mul multiple grind options in, in the rotation. Yeah, so here's what, he, this is what tends to happen. So guys either like our lower bounce sole, and that's great, they'll play our tees, but there are low bounce options are pretty well, like they're low bounce, they're designed to get in the ground, they're going to, you know, they're going to engage with the turf a little more. So guys will end up hitting the S a lot of times with their full shots and loving, loving the performance they get from 60 to 100 yards. But then being like, well, I want that tee around the green so I can open it up. So you can't really add metal to the tee, so it's easier to take the wider sold S with more bounce and work off that for the grind. Gotcha. Um, putter wise, I know he's in a PLD answer. I've I've heard rumblings that we might be hearing more about the uh, the PLD in the not too distant no, future. I got no comments. I'm not going to get you in trouble, KO. Um, but my, my only question there is with the putter, since he is using a prototype, but it is an answer, What what's different about his versus just kind of the standard answer? What what does he what does he maybe like to see that he couldn't find and just, you know, so standard answer? When, when he got on tour and won at Greenbrier, he was using a stock Ping Vault 2.0 Dale answer head. And while working with his putting coach, he really want he found that he wanted he lined it up better with a line on the top rail. And one of the limitations of stock putters is that line is in the back of that putter. So we went to the PLD model um, to get that line on the top rail. And then we've messed we've messed a bunch with feel and sound because we had to get the that P, that vault has our TR groove. So we were looking for something to give him the best feel and sound. And he tried different metals, different uh different milling patterns and him and tony came up with the deep amp so it's our deepest milling in our stainless steel head and he's been using that for i want to say 18 months now it it feels like plds are just becoming like the thing out on tour i mean what percentage of guy of like tour staffers now are using a pld version of a ping putter just just simply because of the customization 
off the cuff, John, I'd say 70%, 60, 60 to 70% of our staff is in a POV putter right now. Okay. Yeah. It definitely feels like it continues to grow. Um, every month when I'm kind of out there looking around, it's like, you just, yeah, I mean, they're putters. Tony, Tony Serrano, um, our putter guy has done a great job with, you know, taking the feedback from his last few years on tour. And you, you saw probably in Phoenix, some of the new head shapes he has are really dialed in. And I mean, the finishes, so guys are able to pick finish, hosel, face feel. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty cool if you can have access to it. Yeah, we, we may or may not have Tony as a as an interview at uh, some point in the next uh, in the next month. It's all you might. Say there. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, may or, may already have had that interview banked. Um, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, la- last question for you is: Is there anything that Joaquin does with his gear setup that amateur golfers could benefit from? Yeah, he plays that seven wood. I mean, at the end of the day. There's no reason for three irons, and I get three hybrids are good, but give a seven wood a chance against your three hybrid and just see how much closer and how much straighter you hit it. I think that's the, the main takeaway. Yeah, awesome. KO, this is great, man. I always appreciate it. Jay Wall, have a great day, sir. And that'll do it for episode 129 of Fully Equipped. Thanks again to Ken for the time. As always, if you want the social media goodness, check us out on Twitter, at Fully Underscore Equipped, and on Instagram, at Fully Equipped Golf. Thanks as all for listening. We'll see you next week.